Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. John 19. Let's return there again this week. John 19. We focus on, focused on verses 8 through 11, but let's read from verse 1 for some context. So John 19, 1 through 11. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. This is the word of the Lord. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to him, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify! Crucify! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. So we're back in the praetorium. This is the home and the court of Pontius Pilate, the Roman praetor. Pilate, as you remember, is trying to remove himself from responsibility. He does not want to have responsibility over this situation. He's going to again make half-hearted attempts to free Jesus. He does not want to crucify this man, and yet the Jews... The Jews hate Jesus with, it seems, an insatiable hatred. One of the things you have to come to terms with when you preach through the Gospel of John is that John doesn't say Jewish leaders, even though most of our Bible translations change Jews to Jewish leaders. The Holy Spirit inspired this and pins this hatred on the Jews as a whole, as a people. It may imply, it, may, it certainly was the Jewish leaders who led the charge. But the Holy Spirit inspired here just the word 
the Jews. Okay? So notice in your, in your modern translations, they will often change Jews to Jewish leaders. They will make that addition. And, um, and yet that is not what the Holy Spirit inspired. Now after, after Pilate announced that he found no guilt in Jesus, which is a sentence, right? Which is his declaration and... It's also, unknowingly, he doesn't even know this, it's a deep, deep theological truth. And there's no guilt in this man. This man, not only has he not done what you've said, he has never sinned. Now, Pilate doesn't get that. But nonetheless, his words make that statement. So after he announces he finds no guilt, the Jews, verse 7, we have a law, and by that law, he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. And that's a true statement. There was such a law. But it didn't apply to Jesus. Because he wasn't just making himself out to be the son of God. He was the son of God. So that, lie, that, that law does not apply. He's not making this up. He was the son of God, and the Jews are blind to his glory, his miracles, his authority, all those things he's done before them, and they want him gone. They don't want the influence of this, this man on their society, right? Their society, which is going so gloriously, right, with Roman occupation and not being able to, to do any of the Jewish rites and... I mean, it's, so we pick up at verse 8, and when he heard the Jews cry out again for Jesus' death, the text says that Pilate was even more afraid. Now Pilate's sinking into this fear. What was Pilate afraid of? Perhaps it was his superstitious view of, of the gods, this Roman view of the gods, uh, the Jews are saying this man made himself out to be the son of God. Was this some sort of visitation of the gods with man? And would he be struck down if he were to do something to provoke this, this God? He probably thought that he could finagle his way out of the Jews demanding that a seditious man be dealt with. But now they are reporting that this man didn't claim to be seditious. Jesus' point when he said that his kingdom was not of this world He's now claiming to be the son of God. Now what was Pilate to do? Uh, was this some sort of visitation from a God, lowercase g? Or, you know, did the, did the Romans treat their gods like we treat mythological figures like Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny, right? Not real, but fun fun to pretend that they're real. Maybe that's how they approach their gods. Regardless, the statement about Pilate's fear indicates that he is worried that he's dealing with some, here, here with something that, or someone here who, who may be more than a man. And notice that the text says, even more afraid, right? It seems that this fear, fear that he was dealing with no ordinary man, had filled his heart in these proceedings from the beginning. So he was scared to start with, now he's even more afraid. 
And that, way, that may explain why from the start he was looking for a way out. He did not want to be interfering with the gods. Or maybe he's just afraid of the riotous Jews. You know, he cannot lose control of the region. If he does that, he knows that the anger of Caesar will fall on his head. And I don't, um, I don't think that is the fear that fills his heart, though, because of what follows. Pilate went back to Jesus and again asked him a question. And now he asks him, where are you from? Now think about that question. Where are you from? Where are you from? And Jesus, what does Jesus do? He says nothing. He does not answer that question. But, but why this question, where are you from? Well, Pilate wants to know his origin. Pilate wants, wants his origin story, right? Pilate wants to know what's going on with this guy. He wants to know if Jesus is from heaven. He, he wants to know if Jesus is one of the gods come down to earth. He wants to know if this is the one about which all of these priests keep prattling on um, about. And so by finding out where Jesus is from, he finds out who Jesus is. He's still trying to figure out who Jesus is. Is he a man from Bethlehem? Is he a man from Nazareth? Or is he a God born from above? Or is he the Messiah the priests have been looking for? He wants to go back outside to the Jews with the information, out to those riotous Jews, and make it clear whose death those Jews are calling for. He wants this information. Again, we see him caught between the charges of sedition and, and now the charges of blasphemy. He can handle the sedition, but there is some kind of fear, fear that he might be working against God or a God if Jesus was who they said he was. But we'll see that his fear does not last long at all. He fears just for a little moment. So Jesus does not answer Pilate's question. He does not tell Pilate that he is from heaven that he is the incarnate Son of God, that he is eternal and everlasting, and he was there when the foundation of the earth was created, when light burst forth into the formless void. He tells him none of that. Silent. So why silence here from Jesus? Well, he had, to, he had answered Pilate's previous questions. He refuses to answer this particular question. And I think that Jesus has said all that needs to be said already. He has indicated that his kingdom is not of this world, of this realm. And Pilate responded by getting his men to scourge him. Pilate's men mocked him and spit on him, crushed a crown of thorns on his head. Pilate's fear is fleeting and Jesus responds to him as those actions deserve. Okay, I answered your questions and you scourged me, now I will not answer your questions. He's not going to answer the fool in his folly. He will not answer a man who declares him innocent and then opens up wounds on his back. 
Ryle makes the point that this refusal of Jesus to speak to Pilate is an indication that God will not always strive with men's consciences. Isn't that an interesting take on that? That Jesus was silent, and here's Pilate trying to work things out. He's like, okay, what am I going to do? You know, my conscience is burdened by this. I've got to figure this out. And Jesus says nothing, and Ryle says, you know, there comes a point when God will stop working on your conscience. Pilate had opportunities to acknowledge the reality of Jesus Christ. He was taught in these moments by Jesus himself incarnate. And his response at each and every point was certainly not faith. It was concern for his own predicament and his own kingdom and his own power. Eventually, God will stop visiting a man like that. He will simply give him over to his sins. Perhaps even in this momentary fear that that arose in his heart, he was tasting of the work of the Holy Spirit. But he does not yield and instead grows harder toward God. So as I said, that eventually leads God to give a man over to his sin. And... We're warned against such unbelief, right? We, brothers and sisters, are warned against such unbelief in the example of Esau. In Hebrews 12, it says this, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. So, consider it an insanely stupendous, glorious gift when God comes to you and convicts you of your sins. Right? Be very happy about that. Be very, very happy when you are under conviction by the Holy Spirit. Consider it a gift when your conscience smites you, right? Consider it a gift when you weep over your sins. Consider it a gift of God when you are moved to repentance and when conviction and a bad conscience and no remorse and no repentance becomes your way of life, know that you are in grave danger of God giving you over to your sin. When you have no remorse for your sins, you're close. You're very close to God giving you over to that sin. Know that if you resist such proddings by God, if you resist that conviction that comes, he may withdraw from you. And you may never again know what it is like to grieve over your sins, except for the fact that maybe they have some earthly consequences to you. You may never again think of your sin as sin against God. If you live to please men as Pilate was living to please the Jews and silence your conscience as Pilate did, you should expect God to stop using the means of your conscience to speak to you. If you're silencing your conscience, God will stop speaking through that means. 
Proverbs 1, they would not accept my counsel, they spurned all my reproof, so they shall eat of the fruit of their own way and be satiated with their own devices. For the waywardness of the naive will kill them and the complacency of fools will destroy them, but he who listens to me shall live securely and will be at ease from the dread of evil. You hear that? You hear what that says? Right? They wouldn't accept my counsel. They wouldn't accept my reproof. So they're going to eat the fruit of their own way. It's a scary thing. We must work to keep a tender conscience before God. Tender conscience. Isn't it wonderful when our children demonstrate a tender conscience? I mean, there's nothing that makes a a mother and father happier than when their kids have a tender conscience, when they actually are sad that they sinned and sad before God and wanting to know what to do about it. What do I do with this? What do I do with this shame and this guilt? And you could say, oh, Jesus, his blood, he died for you, right? But how awful it is, is it when our kids have no conscience? They're just dull to, to any wrong. Just go their own way stubbornly, you know, foreheads like flint in the wrong direction. Into sin. So we must work to keep a tender conscience before God. And that work is, is availing yourselves of the means that God gives to us. What things used to convict you that no longer convict you? Think about that question. What things were you like seriously convicted by maybe when you were first first a believer shortly after your conversion that now it, it just doesn't convict you and you're, you give yourself a pass on it? I think we could all come up with a long list of things like that, right? The silence of Jesus before Pilate is an indication of the withdrawal of God's mercies. It's the withdrawal of God's work in Pilate's conscience. And sure enough, the silence of Jesus enrages Pilate. It doesn't rebuke him. It enrages him. The silence of Jesus also indicates that Jesus was there not to be freed. He was there to be condemned. He knew what was he knew the purpose of all of this and it was to be condemned. He knew he had to be sent he had been sent to save souls and that this was the cup that he had to drink. So he's not going to defend himself. He will become the curse. He will hang on that tree. Pilate's response you do not speak to me? Can you, can you imagine him like puffing up his chest a little bit? You, you do not speak to me? Do you know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? In other words, you best not forget that I've got authority over you, all I have to say is a word and you'll be crucified. Or you'll go free. 
Who do you think you are not answering me? You are mine. You are mine to do with what I please. So much for the fear that caused him to ask the question in the first place, right? This is no, he's no longer afraid. He's flexing. He's not afraid. Silence from Jesus makes Pilate shout about his authority. He shook off that fear he had felt as soon as Jesus did not comply with his desires. We must not forget that Pilate has repeatedly maintained Jesus' innocence. And yet, now that Jesus does not answer his question, he sets aside whatever principles he may have had and simply flies into a rage. It appears his ambition is the thing that is most important to him. Not his integrity, not his consistency, not, and certainly not the truth. Now again, how often do we act like that, dear brothers and sisters? We care more about maintaining our reputations or maintaining what little authority we may have than we care about maintaining the truth. Pilate dismissively asked, what is truth? but then aggressively asserts his authority. Isn't that what we do? I don't care what she said and that it may be true. I won't be belittled by her. <laughs> you know? We say that to our wives, husbands. Why did God give Pilate authority? Why does he ever confer authority on you? Is it so that you can assert your authority and knock people over the head with it? Is it so that you can boast in it and use it to get your own way? No, that, that is not why God has given you authority. He has given it to you that you may use it to honor him, to protect those who are under your authority, and to give you opportunity to insist on God's truth whatever the consequences, no matter the cost. There are so few of us who have it as our one ambition to, to please God. So few that use their authority to that end. And Pilate is an example of the poor exercise of authority, an authority who goes against his own conscience when his authority is challenged, even when it's challenged just by silence. So in the face of such a boast from Pilate, Jesus teaches Pilate about authority. Okay, let's talk about authority. Do you not know that I have authority to do this and to do that? And like Jesus, okay, let's talk about authority. You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. (laughs) Now this is the ultimate statement about all the authority we see on earth. This is the explanation of all authority on earth. Do you realize that? And this is particularly the statement about the authority that governing officials have. 
as we deal with Pilate. The Holy Spirit explains such authority in Romans verse, Romans 13 verse 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Okay. That's what Jesus just said. You would have no authority unless it had been given to you by God. And Romans 13 says, yeah, all authority comes from God. Those authorities that are set up over us to which we are called to be subject are erected by God. But take a step back. Take a step back. Think about this. Here is the Son of God who has all authority in heaven and on earth. And what is he doing at the present moment? He's acknowledging that Pilate has real authority. In this statement, he's acknowledging that the guy in front of him has real authority, right? And, um, but that Pilate is mistaken about where that authority comes from and what, therefore, is its purpose. Jesus' first statement makes that clear. You would have no authority unless it had been given you from above. In other words, the authority you have, which is real authority, does not originate from you and or from Rome or from any other man or electorate. Your authority is actually given to you from God himself. Well, let's move on. There's nothing really to dig into there, right? I mean, we, we all love to acknowledge the authority of, of our governing officials. It's just really easy. So we'll just, let's go to the next passage. Think about this. Now, what Jesus says here is important about how we view, how we approach our governing authorities, our civil magistrates. First, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, tells Pilate, he really does have authority, and that that authority has been given him by God. He does not say, there is only one authority in the world, and that is God the Father. He does not say that, right? No, he tells Pilate that his authority was given to him by God. Yes, God's throne is above all authorities, but he delegates his authority to men, particularly to those who rule over us. They have a God-delegated authority. That's the first thing that we have to acknowledge from this. We, therefore, are called to submit to God. Actually, we're called to submit to governing authorities because in submitting to them, we're submitting to God because God put those authorities over us. And so if we don't get that right, we're, we're off the rails instantly. And that needs to be the main thrust of our view of authority. Authority is good and should be submitted to. Full stop. Authority is good and it should be submitted to. Joe Biden is our president because God gave him every single bit of the power he has right now. Joe Biden is the man we are all called to submit to. 
Having said that, the second important teaching that comes from this passage is this. If Pilate has his authority from God, then he must not be arrogant and abuse that authority. Calvin puts it this way, the father imagines that he may do what he pleases towards his children, the husband towards his wife, the master towards his servants, the prince toward his people, unless when they look to God, who has determined that their authority shall be limited by a fixed rule. Okay? The father, the husband, the boss, the civil magistrate, the church elder, has real authority because it is given to him by God, and because it is given to him by God, it is bounded by his rules and his law. The father, the husband, the boss, the ruler, the elder does not have unbounded authority. They have real command authority, and that command authority is to be wielded in a way that glorifies God who delegated that authority to them as a stewardship. Pilate had real authority over Jesus, and it's mind-boggling to us. It's God before him, and he has real authority over him. He indeed was given the power to make the call on whether Jesus would be released or be crucified, but if he had looked to God... If Pilate had looked to God in this moment, if he had acknowledged the source of his authority, he would have determined that he could not crucify an innocent man. That's what he would have determined. It would have been a just ruling. Fathers, and in this case mothers, you have authority over your children. You have authority over your children. That authority is given to you by God. Are you looking to God as you exercise that authority? Or are you a coward who refuses to take up that authority and so you leave your children to fend for themselves? Or conversely, are you a tyrant over your children? Making your children bend to your every mood? your every whim to, to every outlandish idea that comes into your brain? Do you tyrannize your children? Husbands, you have authority. You have real command authority over your wives. That authority is given to you by God. Are you looking to God as you exercise that authority? Or are you a coward who refuses to take up that authority, and so you leave your wife to fend for herself, to make her own decisions, to lead the household that you really are just annoyed by anyway. Or, conversely, are you a tyrant over your wife? You know, making her bend to every one of your godless ideas, especially in the bedroom. Bosses, you have real command authority over your employees. That authority is given to you by God. Are you looking to God in the exercise of that authority? Or are you a coward who refuses to take up that authority and you just leave your employees to figure out policies on their own? <laughs> right? Chaos. Or conversely, are you a tyrant who micromanages your employees, making them bend to your moods and work in an environment 
that has no encouragement and is just about getting the paycheck at the end of the week. I'll suffer through it if I get a paycheck. What a terrible place to work. But all of us have experienced that sort of tyranny. Elders, you have authority, command authority over the members of this church. That authority comes from God. Are you looking to God as you exercise that authority? Or are you a coward who refuses to take up that authority and so you leave, leave the sheep to suffer for their own sins and, you know, leave sheep to defend themselves against wolves? Not a fair fight. Or conversely, are you a tyrant over the sheep, making them bend to your moods and your whims and your anger and your pride? The, to governing authorities, to our governor, to our senators, to our, to our president, to our representatives, to our sheriff, I'd say the same. The governing authorities, police officers, elected officials have real authority over the people of our city, our country, our state, and our nation. Are they looking to God as they exercise their authority? Are they, or are they, again, cowards who refuse to take up that authority and just expect that we're going to protect ourselves from enemies foreign and domestic? Or conversely, are they tyrants who intrude into every areas of our life, especially stifling the freedom of speech and assembly? So all of this to say that authority is from God and therefore ought to glorify God. But what are those under father, husband, bosses, governors to do when their authority is tyrannical? What are they to do? Many would have you believe that tyrannical authorities do not have authority or that by their tyranny they forfeit their authority. That is not the case. When the Apostle Paul wrote Romans 13, he was asking the Christians in Rome to submit to Nero. Do you realize that? Was Nero a nice guy? Nero infamously hated Christians and is said to lit the bodies of the dead Christians on fire to use his torches around the city. Hasn't happened in America, but we think we're persecuted. So this must be kept in mind. The Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, was telling the Roman Christians to submit to the authority of Nero. Now, if Nero were to decree anything that forced the individual to do that which caused them to go against their conscience, which is bound to the Word of God, the necessary action would have been to disobey. The necessary action would not be to rebel and kill the authority. Ever. The necessary action would be to disobey, then accept the consequences of the power having power over you. Okay? Um, remember the apostles were commanded not to preach Jesus. They said they had to obey God rather than men. And, they did, and then what did the authorities do to them? 
They had them flogged. They opened up their backs, brought them to, you know, an inch before death. And then what did the apostles do? They formed a militia and led an armed rebellion against the Sanhedrin. Nope. (laughs) Not in the book of Acts. No, they went on preaching Jesus Christ. They went on preaching the gospel. Right? Considering it joy to have suffered for his name, and eventually many of those men would be martyred for going on preaching the name of Jesus Christ. What the Christian child, wife, employee, citizen may do if they are living under an authority that refuses to acknowledge God and rule accordingly is to appeal to another authority. Right? You have other authorities you can appeal to. The child or wife living in a, in a home with a godless and abusive man should appeal to the elders of the church and the sheriff. We don't remove authority when authority is bad. We find good authority when authority is bad. Okay? The employee who works under a tyrannical boss should appeal to the civil magistrates. The member of the church who lives under the tyranny of bad elders and pastors should appeal to the presbytery. The citizens of Spartanburg who are oppressed ought to appeal to the authority of state representatives and the governor, or heaven forbid, the federal government. What is terrible is when someone appeals to a higher authority and then they find that higher authority is incompetent and godless themselves. That's horrible, right? The wife goes to the elders and finds them to be unwilling to engage. The church member goes to the presbytery and finds that the presbytery is unwilling to put the time in to figure out what's going on. The citizen appeals to the higher level of government and finds them to have no godliness at all or compassion. Such is often the situation that we find ourselves in and why we ought to pray for those authorities over us that when they have to exercise their authority, they do it in the fear of God and in love and in service to the suffering, to those under them. But what we ought never to do is deny there are authorities or that we are called to submit to them. That's anarchy. That's godless. All authority is from God, and we're called to submit to it. Yes, there's a time for divorce in a marriage. There is perhaps a time to renounce citizenship. There is a time to quit a job. There's a time to leave a church, find a biblical church. But there is never a time to espouse anarchy and deny authority, which is what our society is hell-bent on doing. It's our, it's our ethos that we live in. It's, it's our, our 21st century American context. Everybody is intent on throwing off authority. The state tells parents they have no authority over their children. It's mind-boggling. The wife makes sure the husband knows she will have his head if, if he ever asserts himself. 
Children rise up against parents. Spiritual authority is very seldom ever acknowledged. And should an elder board make a judgment, the very next day the church member just packs up and leaves. How many times have I seen that happen? The Christian church follows the voice of conservative pundits and denounces the government, proclaiming blindly and without understanding that the government has no authority over them, even while they're enjoying the massive military protection that they have from them. So what am I saying here? I'm saying don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. That's what I'm saying. The wrong use of something does not negate the proper use of something. All authority is from God, and generally speaking, authority is good, being from God. Yes, there is tyranny. You heard me say that. Yes, there are times to take actions against bad authority by appealing to higher authorities. Yes, there are times to obey God and disobey man, but all of that is, the, is in the context of the normative circumstance of submit to authority. Why? Because there's a God in heaven who reigns over everything. God is authority. I guess he could have structured the world where he was God and not authoritative, and then we could have anarchy. But that's not the sort of God there is. He has all authority. Lest you forget and want to throw off authority, remember this also from Romans 13, the next verse. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. So Jesus was subject to Pilate because his authority had been given him by God, by Jesus himself. Pilate ought to have looked to God and governed in fear. He did not, and it led him to condemn an innocent man. And on the judgment day, Pilate will will have to give an account before God of that particular sin. And the pronouncement, unless he died in faith, will be guilty. He was given authority and he failed to use it properly. Nevertheless, Jesus was subject to him and Pilate's sin worked out for our good because the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was for the propitiation of our sins. In light of that, we could also say that even the wickedness of rulers is turned to good by God. Oh, man. And the end of all the history of the world and her authorities will be the glory of Jesus Christ the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That will be the end of all history. King of kings and the Lord of lords, who reigns now, will reign openly and explicitly. Right? Well, let's stop there. We'll we'll come back to this passage next week, Lord willing. Let's pray. Father, we hate authority. We confess it before you as sin. And we know that to hate authority is to hate you. And so we know this is a terrible sin. We ask that you would work a submissive heart in each one of us. 
And Father, for all of those who have been delegated authority by you, Lord, I pray that they would do so in the fear of you, that they would wield that authority for the good, for the strength, for the building up, for the, the healing of those under their care. I pray that we would not be cowards and we would not be tyrants. Thank you for the example of Jesus, our Savior, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, bowing and submitting to, bowing before and submitting to Pontius Pilate. It's mere man. All for the purpose that we would be protected and our souls would be saved. Oh Lord, we thank you. We thank you for authority. We pray that we would honor it. We ultimately would honor you and your overarching, comprehensive authority. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.